You're listening to episode 76 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a holistic nutritionist and women's lifestyle coach living in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And here on the Room to Grow podcast, I bring you thoughts or guests in areas of nutrition, mindset, lifestyle, and entrepreneurship that will help you gain confidence so you can stress less and elevate yourself to create the life you love. We are not here to do things perfectly, but we are here to learn from each other and to grow with lots of self-love and compassion along the way. Let's get started. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And today I have such a special episode to bring you. Oh my gosh, we got into so many amazing topics on this one. I'm talking to Melissa Pine, and she's a psychotherapist, social worker, and professional coach. And she uses a cognitive behavioral framework and knowledge of positive psychology to change social emotional intelligence. This episode is awesome. (laughs) I, I have to say, Melissa and I had talked beforehand about some of the things that we wanted to discuss, and we did get into all of those, but then we also ended up branching off into so many other amazing topics. This is, she has such a well-rounded approach, and I can't even fully explain to you how many incredible nuggets are in this episode. It's absolute gold. We talk about everything from toxic positivity and the kind of good vibes only, which is bullshit in my opinion. So we get into all of that. We dig into that topic pretty heavily. Um, We talk about some of the various ways that we numb ourselves in everyday life from really feeling what we need to feel to actually work through things as well. We get into some of the science behind how we isolate ourselves and why we're so lonely. Um, Big discussion about boundaries, huge discussion about boundaries, which I absolutely loved. And we also talk about how success relates to happiness too. There is so much great stuff in this episode. Make sure to pay attention because I don't want you to miss a single minute. So I am not going to hold this up any longer. (laughs) Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And I am super pumped to introduce Melissa Pine. I'm not even going to try and explain her because we've already been like laughing and having the best conversation. And I'm like, we need to hit record quick. (laughs) Melissa, please. Thank you so much for being on the show. And let us know a little bit about you and what you're about, what you do. I'm so excited to do this. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I feel like I'm equally pumped to be here. I love it. Uh, <laughs> so a little bit about me. I'm a, I'm a clinical social worker. I have worked for almost about 15 years now. Gosh, time flies. In the field of mental health and addiction. And so I've spent most of my career working with adults mostly in a hospital setting, so acute, acute mental health and addiction, as well as in private practice. Um, maybe a little bit about me. I just love concurrent disorders. So that's where mental health and substance misuse overlap. And so I spent a lot of time, um, spent a lot of time with working with people individually or in groups. And then a couple of years ago, I came across the work of Bruce Alexander. Are you familiar with him? I am not. No. no. Okay. So he really changed the way we look at, at substance misuse. So if anybody has taken Psych 101, they learned the, the theory that is very pervasive, which is drugs are addictive because they have chemical hooks, right? You're probably familiar with that. Yes. Yeah, psychology was actually one of my majors. So you're probably going to be saying things that I have just forgotten in, in your <laughs> Okay. Well, fair enough. And it's things like the Just Say No campaign, right? Yes. All yes. Drugs have chemical hooks. But the thing is, what Bruce Alexander did was he took the, the original study, which was rats in a cage, and they were given the choice between water or water laced with cocaine. And so the rats would go for the water laced with cocaine to the point that they overdosed. And so from there, that's why we concluded drugs are bad, there's chemical hooks, you know, a rat would drink to excess and end up dying. So what Bruce Alexander did was he looked at this and he said, well, All of these rats are in empty cages, often by themselves, often stacked on top of each other with no interaction, no entertainment, no stimulation in these cages. All they had was the the drug-laced water. And so he got curious about what would happen if the rat's cage was changed. So he designed what he calls rat park. And so he built this cage with, you know, um, some, some mazes, some balls, other rats, right? Is that he made it a really stimulating environment for the rats. And then he repeated it. He put water and water laced with cocaine. 
And what he found was that in that stimulating environment, in that rat park, none of the rats chose to drink the water laced with cocaine. So not just did they not die, they just didn't consume the drugs. So it's really fascinating, right? And you think, you know, is this only relevant to rats? But I don't think so. I think that if we, if we scan out and we look at mental health, if we look at substance use, and we look at these cages that we live in, how isolated we've become. Um, and so all of this led to a really fascinating discussion around what could we do that could disrupt the mental health system as we know it. So instead of just treating people one-to-one -one or even in groups, how do, we, how do we actually, you know, set about changing these cages that we all find ourselves in? So myself and Rachel Pafanis, uh, we started having this conversation about rehumanizing workplaces, thinking that that's where we could impact a lot of change, affect a lot of change. And so we started to look at how do, how do we um, create more meaning and purpose and connection at work. So all of this led us to pursue a coaching certification. And last year, we opened our own coaching practice. And so here I am. I'm committed to helping people anywhere they find themselves on the continuum, from mental illness, which I still do in my private practice, all the way to mental health and, and what that looks like at work. I love this so much. That is, and, and what a great explanation too about, now that you're saying it about the, the study with the, the water laced with cocaine, it's bringing back some memories. I, I mm -hmm. do recall it, but I think I'd forgotten about the impact that that has in really examining what isolation can do to us. And I'm the first one to say that I, I will often find myself isolating, like putting up walls and, and isolating myself. And that's typically how I, pull back like I'm already an introvert so right. sometimes if I'm feeling really overwhelmed I will that's my default is to isolate and awareness obviously is like the first key there because then as soon as I will push myself to go do things and spend more time with more people and, and all of those things you know those social connections I always feel so much better for yeah. it but it's it's sometimes like getting over that that hump of you know well isolating yourself can just feel so good for x amount of time and then you realize how lonely you are and sometimes by that point it almost feels too late so how do you typically get people out of that rut a little bit well i, I think it's even unpacking what what that means right is that first of all we're all wired for love and belonging it's an essential need for every single one of us and so sometimes the argument i hear kind of like you you've made there i'm an introvert and i need time by myself so so connecting with other people that's not really my jam but i think that we're all because of this this hard wiring for love and belonging what we end up doing is searching out almost like these false connections Right. So social media, when we, you know, when we reach out or connect in really kind of pseudo ways and we're trying to meet that need through the, the amount of likes we get on Instagram. Right. Or the amount of shares that you have on LinkedIn or whatever. Right. Is that these are not real, deep, meaningful connections with people. And so they can, in fact, feel draining. They can feel like they deplete the energy instead of actually meeting that need. That's a really great explanation as well, because I, I tend to talk to people a lot about that. And again, like I'm totally guilty of that sometimes where I'll catch myself in what can become a cyclical habit where I will just pick up my phone and look at social media mm. and I'm not looking for anything. I have no purpose to being on. And that's why sometimes I take entire digital detoxes because then I'm always tuned back in to look how often I, I typically am picking up my phone. It's, yeah. That brings an awareness to it that otherwise when we're in it, we're not noticing what we're really doing as much. Yeah. Well, and it's a great point. You pick up your phone and you, you scroll through that kind of mind, mindlessly, you're still getting a dopamine hit. So yes. the same way that drugs can release that, right, is that there's lots of research now that looks at social media or screen addictions and releasing the same kind of dopamine. So interesting. And, mm -hmm. and they're designed that way. Like this yeah. is what people forget sometimes is that they pay people to make these apps purely addictive as, right. addictive as they possibly can and use legitimate research to make us attracted to it like candy. Right. And that's, that's some people's entire jobs is to get us to spend more time on social media. And I always have to keep that in mind whenever I start getting sucked into a scroll. I'm like, 
you know, maybe it's time to go do something else. <laughs> right, right. And it's not, it's not your social media friends that will come to, you know, your rescue if you're, if you're in a funk, if you need help, right? And so it's, I think you're absolutely right that they are designed to hook us in, but they do not actually meet the need for connection. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so true. Mm -hmm. And you and I had kind of talked a little bit about, uh, toxic positivity. Yeah. You mentioned that to me and I, it's that sort of, I'm tying that to social media a lot in the same vein, because there's a lot of times that I see people spewing this bullshit on social media, but like Uh even the hashtag, right? Like hashtag good vibes only. And it irritates me because you and I were talking before we jumped on too. And I'm like, it's, it's such bullshit because we would never get to the point of recognizing what good vibes looked like if we didn't wade through the shitty bad vibes to get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's just it, right? Like I think that happiness is all the buzz these days and I'm actually not anti-happiness. I need to make that really clear. No, not at all. No, I'm not either. <laughs> but I would, what I do adamantly oppose is this idea of false positivity that's become so pervasive. Right. And I think the result is that people cannot or are not willing to sit with their uncomfortable emotions. Yeah. And and it really comes down to how we want others to view us, especially Mm -hmm. on something like a social media platform where we're trying to put our best foot forward and be viewed and portrayed in a particular way. And we want people to think of us in a certain way. And it's a really fine line because, yeah, like, I'm never going to want to show up on social media, you know, with TMI and like telling people all the dirty details of what might be going on behind the scenes of my life and, and all those things like that can go way too far the other direction, but it's also okay to show up and be like, Hey, you know what? I'm not having a great day, but maybe this is what I'm doing to try and pull myself out of it. Or I'm just kind of like sitting in this, in this discomfort for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And when I take that example into a workplace, I think of a leadership or a leader that I was working with and our focus was on leadership presence. And so she had said to me, you know, um, (laughs) good vibes only think happy thoughts, just be positive, you know, see the good in everything, all of that bullshit. And what she was doing with her team was actually a lot of cheerleading, right? Really trying to coax people into good, happy moods. And so we sat down and we were exploring what's the impact of that. And so the impact of that is exactly what you said in terms of people either needed to hustle, they needed to, you know, slap smiles on their faces and pretend things were good when they weren't because the message indirectly that they were getting was that this was not an environment that was safe to feel anything or express anything other than happiness. And so the result of that was that she was burning through trust with her team. People didn't feel like they could be authentic or genuine in the workplace. And so they stopped bringing hard issues to her, right? It had this really, and that's of course, you know, the the very opposite of what she was trying to cultivate on her team. Mm, And I'm glad you mentioned authenticity too. I'd I'd actually just made a note about that because this, it, it doesn't feel authentic to me when I follow someone online and I've made a point of not really following people online who, who give this portrayal. But when I used to follow people online who only ever seemed like 100% happy, 100% of the time, yeah, because it's not real life and it feels really inauthentic. And, and you're also so right that that doesn't even feel like a safe space because it really cultivates feelings of, of not enough Mm -hmm. and like unworthiness and stuff as well. Well, you know, she is doing so well why can't I just be more like her? Right. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to me, that really ties in with the fact that you have, um, Brene Brown's certification who anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm obsessed. (laughs) And the woman has absolutely made like vulnerability and shame sexy in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't have a good vibes only, you know, positive vibes that, and, and that's it all the time. No. And still cultivate these feelings of trust and authenticity and and opening up doors to really honest, real conversations. Well, and that's, and that's it. So we've started to, to call it this disease of nice, where you go into a workplace and everybody is super polite, super kind, but you know, there's shit that they're not talking about. 
you know, there's stuff that's right under the surface that needs hard conversations that need to be have that had that everybody is just avoiding. And so you can't get there through that toxic positivity. You have to, you have to be able to lean into some of this discomfort and actually put words to the, Brene calls it rumbling, right? Being able to, to have some of those tough conversations, vulnerable conversations. And in some ways, I think that that really ties into boundaries a lot mm -hmm. as well, because if we're putting up boundaries for the people around us, whether, you know, it's online or in a workplace or with our loved ones, where we are giving off the impression, you know, only come to me if you have something good to say, right? Or if other people are doing that to us, that's a boundary that is, is going to really stick out like a sore thumb. And, and that's kind of the feeling that we're going to leave people with or that we are going to be left with that, you know what, that person is not safe for me to come out and discuss that with. And, and that boundary can be really debilitating and cause a lot of problems for people too. Yeah. Now let me speak out of both sides of my mouth here, because the flip side to that is that those boundaries can actually be really important, right? If I've, let's say I've had a hell of a week, I've had, you know, a number of difficult clients or I've had com complex cases on my schedule and Friday night comes around and a friend calls me up and says, you know, I've, I've, I need to talk. I've got something heavy. I need to process through. Can I have your ear? So in that moment, I have to check in with myself and determine, do I have the energy to give this, to, to do this conversation justice? And so it is okay to set a boundary that says, not right now, right? A boundary that said, you know, I love you, I care about you, but I cannot be present for this conversation because of the week that I've had. Can we pick this up, you know, in a couple of days? Give me a night to recharge. Let's go for coffee tomorrow. That's very different, establishing that boundary than saying, you know, you'll be fine, you'll get through it, just be positive, right? The, the way that that lands for somebody is either a moment that they turn in and you're investing in that relationship, I love you, I need to recharge so that I can be present for this conversation, versus the toxic positivity of dismissing and trying to, to cheerlead through somebody, which really minimizes their experience. I'm really happy you mentioned that. Yes, because it, it absolutely goes both ways. And I have had to have those conversations with people before where mm. people will come to me and I'm just not in a great headspace. And I'm like, you know what? I feel like I I'm, won't be able to do you or me justice right now by mm -hmm. opening up my heart to this. I, I'm like, I need to just have a little bit of time and space to recharge and then let's regroup and discuss it, you know, X, X date, like X time in the calendar so that you know that I'm, I'm still here for you. I just, I want to give you my full attention and I can't right now. So right. I think that that's so important. I, I'm starting to have more and more conversations with people about boundaries and in my own life too. And I, I think that it's such an important conversation to have because a lot of us don't have nearly enough boundaries or we have boundaries up in potentially ways that are either harming us or harming our connection with others. And yeah. it, it can go in so many different directions and, and we have to really work through that to figure out where those boundaries and where those lines need to be. Well, and it's, and it's, I think what it does is it challenges the belief that we have or the assumption that we have that setting boundaries with people means that they're going to think differently of us, right? It means that if I say no to you, that I'm being unkind in some way. And so in fact, boundary people are often the most compassionate people. So I've got, um, I shared this on social media, which is funny because my best friend is so anti-social media. So here it is, story again, being shared on a podcast. She'll love this. <laughs> She's been my best friend since we were four, and she is probably the most boundaried person I know. She really is fantastic. So this winter, no, last winter, I called her up. And I said, you know, there's an outdoor boot camp in the park. I would love to do it with you. It's every Tuesday night. I could pick you up. We could go together. What do you say? And she said, no, thank you. And so I hung up the phone and my immediate thought was, what a jerk. <laughs> right? Like she was very clear. I'm not interested in doing it. She said, that's your thing. I have no desire to work out in the snow. That's crazy. Count me out. Right? Really clear boundary. True Canadian style there, by the way. I'm very impressed right? that you do that in snow. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, it was funny, though, because after I got through my initial reaction of what a jerk, I started to think about what it would be like if every Tuesday for the rest of the winter, I drove over and I picked her up, but she didn't want to do it. 
right? She got in the car, she would be resentful, she would be, you know, not looking forward to this, she would begrudgingly go out of obligation. What that would start to do is strain our relationship. And so her no, her setting a boundary with me, what it actually did was invest deeper into our relationship. Because it means now I know, and I've known this for a long time because she's got great boundaries, is that I can ask her for anything. And if she can't do it, she won't do it just out of obligation. And so the impact that has on me is I never feel like a burden. I never feel like there's something that I shouldn't ask her for because I know she'll be really clear if she can't. I also know that when she says yes, she wholeheartedly heartedly wants to do it, right? She's in 100%. I, I love that you're using this story as an example because boundaries to me symbolize trust yeah. because then you know that people aren't just giving you a dishonest yes or, you know, like that they're saying yes, but really they're saying no. And then that's also when we'll run into situations where, you know, somebody said yes to you. So let's say your friend had said yes to going to the boot camp, but then she was bitching behind your back to all right. your other friends like, oh, I don't want to go, but I feel like I have to. And then it just turns into this whole negative cycle when if she wanted to say no, she could have just said no. And yeah. then you trust when she does say yes, like you said. There's, there's also that other saying, um, I have no idea who said this originally, but something about that the only people who are bothered by, by boundaries are the people who benefited from you having none. Mm, and yeah. I think that that's something that we all need to keep in mind because you can, once you start to look for that, in your life, I think that it becomes glaringly obvious who is benefiting from you potentially having a lack of boundaries and who's yeah. respecting your boundaries. Yeah, and that's a conversation I have often with clients that sounds something like you're making a really important change in your life right now and people are going to, people are going to struggle with it, right? So it's one thing to find the motivation to get up and make a change in your life, but then you've got people who, you know, well-meaning people, but they've been used to relating to you in a certain way. So if you've been a people pleaser, if you've been a yes person, and now all of a sudden you start saying no, it's going to really throw people. And so a lot, of, a lot of the work I do, I help people coach around, or I coach people around setting an initial boundary, but that's not enough. It's about how do you maintain that on an ongoing basis, right? How do you, how do you make it clear what you're okay with and not okay with? And when people start to push back or when people start to feel around for, are there gaps in this boundaries? Are there, is there wiggle room that I could get away with some of this? How do you stay strong and maintain that boundary ongoing? And that's a fascinating conversation. I mean, you and I could talk all day about just that because that is a true testament to how, how much we mean it when we set boundaries. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to mean it because people will look for those little gaps, like you said, and not, not in a malicious way. It, it's not coming no. from a bad place. It's just, that's kind of human instinct in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. And it's, it doesn't make them a bad person or anything, but they're, they are testing you or, and, and you are going to be tested on that. So if you set a boundary, you have to mean it because otherwise, again, that trust element comes into it. And then they aren't going to trust you the next time you say yes or no. Right. You don't mean the boundaries that you're setting. Yeah. Yeah. And then cycling back even to what you had said earlier is that if I'm saying no, and then I give on my boundaries, what that does is it sets up for resentment to enter that relationship. So good. So mm -hmm. good. I, I love having, we weren't even going to talk about boundaries. We, we so are so good. off our original note. Way off. This is so I good. Love I love it. <laughs> oh, we, cause we could go down the resentment road all day too. I think that oh, we're yeah. going to need to do a second episode of this because like, we're going to do part one and part two because well, <laughs> I told you when you asked, are you excited about everything? And I said about 17 different things. I meant <laughs> This is perfect because we're having a fantastic conversation. We already had a fantastic conversation before we even jumped on. And I love that you and I have never even chatted before. We yeah. a mutual friend introduced us via LinkedIn and this just all came together. And it's as soon as you matched me, yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, this girl's setting me on fire because you just, you had so many great things to, to share. So I think we're going to be doing a part two of this. I'm pretty mm -hmm. excited. <laughs> I've already thought popcorning on about, you know, three different other, very different other tangents we could oh take. Oh my gosh. I love it. This is awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and okay. I know that we did have other things that, that we wanted to bring up. So one thing that I wanted to talk to you about was this has been on my mind a lot lately about how everyone sort of has a vice 
but mm. that we tend to associate that with, you know, the, the bigger things like drinking and drugs and, you know, like using sex in an, in an unhealthy way, potentially like yeah. what, what are some of the other most common ways that we kind of numb ourselves? Because I think we need to shine a light on this and bring some awareness to some behaviors that most of us have. And again, like I'm raising my, my hand over here on some of the ways that I know that I numb and tune things out. And we're never going to move past it if we don't shine light in that area and bring some awareness to it. Yes. Yes. So I'm very passionate about this. I think on the one hand, you know, what you're naming on the one end of the continuum is what we would call, you know, the addictive behaviors. So um, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, pornography, right? All of those, all of those pieces. And so we sometimes look at numbing existing along this continuum. And when we think of, you know, an extreme degree of that, that, that numbing that becomes chronic or compulsive. So when I, when I worked with people, um, you know, I used to work at withdrawal management. And so sometimes I would work with people. I remember one client who told me that heroin felt like a warm hug to them. Right. And so, man, your heart just goes out when you hear that's, that's beyond comfort. That's now about survival, right? People who cannot bear the pain that is, you know, what it takes to be present in their life. And so that's one end of the continuum. But what you're hitting on is the more everyday, seemingly benign kind of ways that we, that we numb. And so I think it's helpful to distinguish numbing from comfort, right? Um, and let me give you an example. I love peanut butter. I love peanut butter. And I am notorious for, you know, every afternoon slicing up an apple, you know, dipping it into peanut butter. I love that. Like, in a, like I'm in elementary school. It's my favorite go-to snack. So the difference between, that's a comfort for me. When I am numbing, I eat peanut butter with a spoon from the jar, standing up in the kitchen in front of my kitchen cabinets like a wild animal right? Like I can eat half a jar of peanut butter. And the difference to me is that, you know, after an apple and a few, you know, a tablespoon or two of peanut butter, I feel good. After half a jar of peanut butter, no, not so much, right? That's how I know that that's numbing and not comfort. And there are a million ways that we do that. We do that through, you know, mindlessly scrolling through social media. We do that through Netflix binges. We do that through shopping. We do that through gossiping. You know, we do it through humor, sarcastic, biting humor. Um, we do it even through, you know, the hustle of trying to manage what people think of us. So, you know, sometimes people, when they're in pain, they get smarter. Or, and what I mean by that is they, they smarter in almost a in a talk down to you kind of way or sound like, like a smart ass, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. In a condescending kind of way. So there are a lot of ways that we numb and the heart of it is looking at what is the, what is the discomfort? What is the emotion that we are trying to, to bottle, to suppress? Because here's the, here's the catch with numbing is that you cannot do it selectively. You cannot say, here are the feelings that I want to have in my life. I want joy and happiness and excitement and anticipation, but I don't want to feel sad or anxious or angry or disappointed. You cannot selectively numb. And so when you get into the habit of numbing, what it does is it turns down the volume on all of your emotions. Your joy, your happiness gets experienced less intensely because you cannot allow yourself to experience the full range, the full intensity of your feelings. This is so good. You, you're blowing my mind with this because even though this is stuff that, you know, like we, we intuitively kind of know this, hearing the reminder is always incredibly helpful. And I love what you said too, about how it turns down the volume on all emotions. Mm -hmm. So then even things like, like joy and happiness and positivity and all of those amazing things, we're not going to feel those as brightly as we would, same as we are maybe numbing things like anger and sadness and depression too. Right. And I think, I think, you know, the, the heart of that is that we have a lot of, a lot of judgments around our emotions. This is what I should feel. And this is what I shouldn't feel, or even that there are good emotions and bad emotions. Feelings are just that they are a source of information, right? They, they serve a purpose for us. And so when we try and suppress 
feelings. There's a psychological term and it's called um, emotional leakage, but I think of it like whack-a-mole, right? Is that if you try and push down a feeling, it often pops up in a weird or unexpected kind of way. And so that idea of toxic positivity or numbing, it's problematic because what it's doing is suppressing the natural range of emotion, which causes all kinds of havoc for us. That's really great. I also, I, I, for some reason, I prefer your term, but whack-a-mole as opposed to emotional leakage. Right? <laughs> Something weird. It just sounds weird. Something weird. Yeah. Something weird. <laughs> so funny. But no, it's so true that a lot of times, this is why um, I've been working through some, some fairly heavy stuff lately. And I was talking to my therapist about it. And, and I said to her the one day that I had felt really good about things for like, I don't know, a couple weeks or something. And mm. I was coming to her with a huge amount of concern because I'm like, I feel like I'm compartmentalizing and I'm very worried that I'm trying to work around it and not through it. And I'm very insistent that, you know, I, because I, I know I have like this background, I know that I need to work through it and not try and bypass it because otherwise yeah. it will end up coming up in other ways. Mm -hmm. But then I think that sometimes also we can go through these phases of just naturally things might just be feeling a little bit better. And it doesn't mean that, that necessarily we're, we're going around it. It just might be that those emotions have kind of like pulled back for a little while, but yeah, they might come popping back up in like a week or two. And that might catch you off guard, but this is the thing about emotions and feelings is that they aren't necessarily very predictable either. Right. Feelings are transient, right? Yes. Feelings are, are, and I think that's sometimes the danger is that I feel this way, so I will always feel this way, right? It becomes, uh, it becomes rigid. When we get hooked by our emotions, we lose kind of that agility to say, this is how I'm feeling right now. In two minutes, in two hours, in two weeks, I may not feel this way. And in fact, that's one of the, the characteristics of depression is looking at, looking at that, that feeling of hopelessness that today is a really bad day and I can't imagine the future looking any different than this, right? That's what keeps people so stuck in that feeling, what separates depression from sadness. Oh, it's so true. Yeah, and, and that is a really fine line that I think a lot of people are it can be a bit of a gray area if you don't actually go to get diagnosed by anyone people can can be sad for extended periods of time or maybe even situationally depressed as opposed to full-blown depression and there is a difference between the two as well but yeah the problem is we we all are let loose with a google search bar and then a lot of times we try and just diagnose ourselves when it might not be the best idea either. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's one of my biggest frustrations with, with this and where I think even about the role that coaching can play in helping with the mental health system, in disrupting the mental health system as it is right now, is that I'm a clinically trained social worker and I would see you know, a whole range of clients in my private practice, ranging from you know, when we look at mental illness, serious and persistent mental illness with symptoms that are frequent, severe, and long duration. And then I would have somebody, you know, my next appointment might be the same kind of person coming in, um, but this time pathologizing a normal emotional reaction. And so I think what I mean by that is that we start throwing around mental health diagnosis so casually you know, we you hear people on, again, social media or floating around the workplace where people will say, oh, I'm so depressed, you know, or, you know, that person's so OCD or isn't the weather so bipolar. We have become so flippant about using these, these terms around mental illness that it pathologizes normal emotional reaction. And so I think starting to tease some of those out, starting to make some of those distinctions around, you know, you've experienced, um, you've experienced a loss. It's normal to feel sad. That's not the same thing as depression. We have to be more clear about our, our language in describing these things. That's a really, that's starting to become a really common topic on this podcast alone, actually, because I was speaking to I interviewed a somatic therapist um, mm. that when this episode airs, I think it, it will already be up. So you can definitely, uh, anyone listening can go take a look for that. And she and I were talking about the word trauma and mm. that a lot of times we will use the word trauma in a really um, benign way. Yeah. Like we'll just be talking about a regular situation. Oh, I was so traumatized that, you know, that driver cut me off 
or mm. something like that, when we, then we're taking away from what true trauma can actually look like, how it can manifest in us either physically, emotionally, mentally. And, and we take away from that experience for the people that are experiencing a legitimate trauma. And we have to be more careful about our language because, and and I'm sure that there have been times where I've been guilty about that as well before I cultivated some more awareness around it about, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so depressed or Mm. when that wasn't necessarily the case. I had another guest. um, I think you listened to this episode as well with Topsy as, Mm -hmm. as well. I'll make sure to reference that in the show notes. And she and I were also talking about that. And she was saying that a lot of people will say something about, um, you know, about being depressed about not, I can't remember if it was depressed or if it was another mental health type term that, uh, about not making it to the, the Justin Timberlake concert. And she's uh, like, you know, uh, there's, there's a big difference between that, yeah. and, you know, being actually depressed about a particular situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Language oh. is very important and we don't give it enough credit about how much of a role it can really play in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or how dismissive it can be of people's experiences. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh no. I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole all day too. Cause I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm really passionate about that. And I hear people throw those terms around and, and it is just mostly about awareness because I know that there have been times in my life where I have been guilty of that, but now that I am more aware of it, I'm, I'm much more careful about it. And again, it's kind of one of those things It kind of really comes down to awareness um, in large part. But I mean, all of this said in terms of numbing, how do we then go about cultivating becoming more present in our lives? Like how do we find ways to sort of sit in the discomfort of our emotions? Yeah, I think a, a couple of ways. And the first is the first is I love that I love how your question asked, how do we be how do we be more present in our lives? Because that's that's just it. It starts with a noticing. So, you know, mindfulness, that idea of a particular way of paying attention, one that is in the present, that's non-judgmental, and that's single-focused, is that I think that we, we start that by noticing, how am I feeling right now? And so it can be as simple as actually just naming or labeling an emotion. And so rarely do we experience one feeling at a time. Often they come in clusters. And the result is it makes them really difficult for people who are inclined to problem solve, right? It makes it really difficult to problem solve emotions if they don't first understand what it is that they're experiencing. So, you know, that's, it's as simple as, as, as taking almost a detached observer standpoint and say, I'm noticing I'm feeling anxious. I notice I'm getting annoyed. I noticed, and actually using feeling words, because that's one of the, one of the things that I work a lot with clients is helping them distinguish what's a thought versus what's a feeling. And so oftentimes, you know, we, we mistakenly think feelings are facts. And so if I'm feeling anxious, then the conclusion is there must be something to be anxious about. But by starting to be more present in our lives, is, is by noticing what I'm feeling. And then from there, we can, we can start to get more curious about that, right? So what is the story I'm telling myself that is leading to the feeling of anxiety? Or what am I, you know, this, this anger that I'm experiencing, what is it connected to? There are some, some clients that I work with where that is incredibly difficult, that, that idea of naming a feeling. And we even start sometimes with what am I experiencing in my body? Where do I feel this? What physical sensations do I have? And so uh, I actually, I started doing a lot of, I do a lot of yoga. And a couple of years ago, I was doing, I was in this yoga class and um, we had to lay almost like, I'm doing it right now. You can't see me at all. Um, but I, you have to lay like you're bumping a volleyball, that hand on hand, and then the weight of your body on top of your, on top of your arms. And, uh, and my left elbow was way out to the side, kind of like a chicken wing, right? My right arm straight, my left elbow out to the side, like a chicken wing. And this, you know, yoga instructor came over and, you know, gently whispered in my ear. She said, you know, just tuck your arm under. And in my head, I was thinking every swear word imaginable because it was so painful, right? And she's whispering this in a soft voice to me. And I said to her, I I can't, I can't. And she said, it looks like you carry a lot of tension in your, in your left elbow. And so, you know, what that unleashed in me again, more swear words, 
you crazy hippie, right? Like that's, that's not a thing. I don't carry tension in my left elbow, but that awareness was enough for me to start to pay attention. And so what I noticed over the next couple of weeks is anytime I was in a stressful situation, if I was working, you know, with a client that was, that was facing something really complex, if I was in a stressful situation in my own life, I have this habit of sitting with my legs crossed and tucking my hand between my knees, almost always my left hand. And so I realized that I started to lock out my elbow and my shoulder. And so what I was noticing in yoga, this tension in my left elbow was actually a result of how I was holding my body. And so that became like a big flashing red light that said, you know, my, my logical brain would say, you're fine, you're fine. But then when I checked in with my emotional self, it was, if you're fine, why are you sitting like this? right? This is, a, this is a position where you are bracing yourself against some discomfort. Get curious about what it is that you're feeling in this moment, right? And that's how I could start to, that's actually what started my own practice of self-compassion, but it wouldn't have happened unless I started to be, become aware of what I even call like my poker tells, right? So with clients helping them identify what are your own individual poker tells that urge you to be more curious about your emotional experience. That's such a great reminder as well. Just even, I love how you mentioned something as simple as just naming the emotion. Mm -hmm. Like how many of us will just, you know, we're, we're not even fully aware of necessarily what, what we might be feeling, or we might just associate it to like, oh, I'm just, I'm just feeling pissed off. Like, I feel like some people will almost default to like either angry or happy. And those are the only two things that they kind of think about. Like I'm either PO'd or I'm, I'm relatively okay today. (laughs) Okay. So, and let me throw that back at you. Why do you think they do? Why do you think people default to happy or angry? I think that it's easier. I think that it's easier for people to do that than to actually dig in because if they, if they start to really dig into those emotions, then they're going to have to sit with them and to figure out like, what is bringing that up and what do I maybe need to work through? And that's a lot harder work than just telling yourself, Oh, I'm pissed off today. Yeah, you got it. So the happiness is the toxic positivity, right? Or the the false positive, right? I'm just going to slap a smile on my face and pretend it's okay. The anger is the other side of the coin, but it's the same it's the same thing. Anger, the purpose of anger is to let us know when our rights have been violated or our boundaries have been crossed. Anger is such a healthy natural response in its primary form. The trouble is that most of us actually experience what's called secondary anger or identify as having secondary anger, and that is the avoidance of uncomfortable feelings. And so it is much more vulnerable for me to say, I feel really sad and disappointed by what just happened, right? Is that I may feel more powerful, more in control if I say I'm pissed off, right? I'm really angry at you. But the truth is, that's not really what I'm feeling. I'm feeling sad. It's just more vulnerable to go there. There are so many questions I want to to discuss with you about this because this is so, so accurate. One thing that always comes up for me and that has been coming up in conversation, I feel like with a lot of people lately, is this whole idea that we feel like anger is bad, Mm. That, that anger is bad, and especially as women. I feel like men are somehow given this implicit permission to be angry. Not, I don't mean all the time, just like that they're, they're almost given, it's more acceptable for a male to have anger and to be angry once in a while and to express that anger in hopefully in a healthy way. Um, but that women that we feel like we need to paste a smile on our faces. Yeah. We don't, that then we are judged much more harshly. Right. Much more, much more harshly. <laughs> I think that right sounded weird. I'm following. <laughs> the other, the other side of, of that for me as well is that I feel like a lot of people will there. I have, I have been in experiences where people who will do something to I'll just speak from personal experience, people who have done things that were really wrong, like very wrong on any scale to me. And mm-hmm. then I got angry about it then they would get angry at my anger right and they couldn't take that anger because i i think that they often couldn't stand the result of like it, my anger was a result of the consequences that for for whatever action they had taken and right. I, i've talked to a lot of people who have experienced that as well that someone will do something really shitty to them 
But then if they get angry at that other person for it, that other person immediately shuts them down because it's like, no, like you've no right to be angry with me. Right. And, and that can be a really negative experience for, I mean, for both parties, but especially the person who has every right to be angry about, about a particular situation, but they are just being shut down. And if, um, if we come at that from the perspective of someone who's in like an actual, like a romantic relationship or something that mm -hmm. can be really difficult because if you're still with that person, then like, where's the anger going to go, right? That's just yeah. going to turn into resentment. Yeah. So you're hitting on two really important themes here. The first one is, is kind of the overarching theme for today. This idea that feelings are, some feelings are okay and some feelings are not okay. And so I, a lot of that has to do with how we're socialized, right? So more okay for men to be angry, but certainly not for men to have tears or for men to show weakness. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it goes both ways in that regard. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas women, you know, maybe more okay to, to cry, but don't be angry or else I'll call you a bitch, right? And so all of those negative labels that get slapped on that emotional response. And so I think, you know, that, that first theme that you identified there is that feelings are okay. The difference is a feeling and a behavior are quite different. So it's okay for me to feel angry. It is not okay for me to hurt you. It is not okay for me to, you know, flip tables and lash out, right? I'm still responsible for my behavior, even while I'm feeling those really intense feelings. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was why I made the point about expressing anger, like in a healthy way. Yeah. It's, it's an entirely different thing. If, if we are using, you know, like physical violence or something like that, because we're angry, that's a right. totally separate issue. And that is not healthy, but yes, like we have to be responsible for our behavior and for our feelings too. Like we have to own all of it. Well, and then I think that the second theme that, that you're kind of naming here, and if I can just put a word to it, you can please, me, that's not what you <laughs> But it sounds like accountability, right? Is that when you feel anger, and if it's that primary anger, my rights have been violated, my boundaries have been crossed, and as a result, I feel angry, and I'm going to hold you accountable to that behavior. This is not okay with me, and this is what I need moving forward, really clearly, really directly. For some people, that accountability can be off-putting, right? And that's where you might see them get defensive or respond with anger right? That's, you know, oftentimes with clients, we have conversations around whose is that to own? Oh, great question. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's really, really good. Oh my gosh. We are digging into so many amazing things today that I didn't even expect to touch on. I this know, is No, <laughs> I know. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface, right? Any one of these topics could be a podcast in and of itself. We are going to be doing more. I'm going to be calling you up right. again in a month or two. I love we're it. Doing part two. <laughs> I love it. I wanted to ask you one more kind of like main question. Yeah. Because you have such a really great handle on um, like going into workplaces and, mm -hmm. and that sort of aspect of a lot of these things that we're talking about. We hear people kind of joking about taking mental health days when they'll call in sick sometimes to work. And at least in, in my experience in the corporate world, I wasn't in, in the corporate world for a, a long time. There is still a really big stigma and a huge amount yeah. of judgment associated with that. And most people won't actually own up to a mental health day. And instead they'll simply lie and tell their employer that they're sick. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to know what sort of changes you would like to see and what kinds of changes do you predict happening to shift this a little bit? Because again, like I've raised my hand on, on almost everything in this podcast today. I did that multiple times where I was so stressed and so anxious that I would call in sick to my corporate job and use up a sick day for essentially a mental health day. But I would just tell them that I was physically sick because right. I knew that it would, and it was an amazing place to work. It wasn't anything about them. I think that that's just sort of the general corporate stigma in a lot of ways that mental health is still not accepted the same way that physical health is. Right. Right. So let's be, let's be really clear. You using a mental health day or you using a sick day for mental health is totally acceptable. Right. It's the it's the piece of feeling like you need to say it's because of a physical reason that's problematic. And and you even saying that is like, I'm not even in the corporate world anymore. And I almost felt like relief just with you yeah. saying that because it's like it's as though we need somebody to give us permission for that to right. be okay. Right. And, and you even just saying that out loud is it says a lot. 
Yeah. And so you had asked about kind of what I predict. I think right now we're, we're in kind of a, a bit of a trend where employee engagement is getting a lot of focus, right? How engaged are your staff? Um, lots of measurements out there to, to be able to, to kind of put your finger on how engaged are people. I think that we're moving from a conversation around employee engagement to employee well-being. And that focus will, will be very different. And so I think, you know, that when I look at the ingredients to get us there, I think first and foremost, there needs to be more psychological safety in workplaces. And so what I mean by that is that it needs to feel safe enough that we can talk about our flaws and our vulnerabilities without any kind of negative repercussions. And so whether that's, you know, work projects where, you know, I was feeling anxious and I need to, I need to look at the deadline for this, or I had unexpected demands come up on my time, I won't be able to meet that deadline. Um, those are the kind of vulnerabilities that we need to be able to, to express at work that need to be safe enough. But I also think that when we have that, that people will be able to be more honest and more candid about what they're actually experiencing. So back to avoiding that toxic positivity, what we'll see is that people who can be more real about what their own, work, what their own life is like. We don't check our humanity at the door when we go into work. And so this idea of, of shifting to employee well-being, I think it will be about being more than just professional. It will be about being whole people in workplaces. And so what I think we need to do to get there is that leaders need to go first, right? Need, leaders need to, to model this. They need to take risks. They need to be vulnerable. And they need to demonstrate that there are, there are not negative repercussions for that. You know, that being said, that still having appropriate boundaries, it's still holding people accountable, right? All of that becomes part of the psychological safety. It's not an easy thing to do. But, you know, that kind of trust, that kind of safety gets established when people feel like they're, they're genuinely cared for in ways that are actually meaningful for them. That's so good. I think that that's such a reminder that, I, I mean, I hope, I, I, do, I do see that, that that trend is starting to take place, um, especially with the work of people like Brene Brown. And yeah. it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent, but we still have a long way to go. So I, I love the predictions that you're making. And I, I really hope that that comes to, comes to be for a lot more workplaces and a lot more people because mental health is important. And, and the problem is, is that we are just becoming more and more stressed as yeah. a society. Like it's, yeah. it's not going down, it's only going up. So we have to start taking some pretty drastic measures to counteract some of this and for, for the benefit of, of people's health, because I mean, there will be, if, if we take better care of people's mental health, there will be fewer sick days. There yep. will be more productivity. We will get better work from happier, healthier, more well-adjusted people who are showing up for work every day. Yeah. Like all of these things are so interconnected that I just don't think that, that we give that, all of the other aspects of it enough credit. A lot yeah. of times it just comes down to a bottom line, right? And we're not looking at the full picture. Well, and I think even, you know, speaking to the bottom line, sometimes companies will ask for, for what's the return on investment? So if I do this, you know, show me, show me the dollar value that I would save or what is the impact of this initiative? And I think if you look at the time spent, you know, the World Health Organization, the WHO has named depression as the number one cause for disability globally. So the, the sick days, the, the leaves, the mental health leaves, but then also the, the process of if somebody burns out in a stressful job and they end up leaving, now the cost that it takes to onboard somebody new, right? When you have staff turnover like that, that, that becomes very expensive. And so if there's ways to, to deeply care for the people that, you, that, that work for you, that work with you, I think that you know, when you, you zoom out and you look at the bigger picture of that, it, it really is cost saving. And like you were saying, it's, you know, Sean Aker, he wrote um, The Happiness Advantage, and it looks at how, how workplaces, how innovation and creativity and um, productivity, we've, how all of that actually increases when people feel cared for and when people feel happy at work. 
And so we have this, you know, outdated formula that I'll be happy and then I'll be, or I'll be successful and then I'll be happy. And so he actually flips it around and he looks at, you know, I'll be happy and then I'll be successful. So how do we create conditions where people do feel um, at ease at work, supported, connected, doing purposeful or meaningful work? No, it's so true. And that's a great book too. I, I really, really enjoyed that book a lot. And I, I think mm-hmm. that um, I'll make sure to reference that in the show notes because I, I think everyone would get a lot out of reading it and just readjusting the, the sort of old outdated concepts that I mm-hmm. think that we have about success. Because a lot of times we, we associate success with happiness, but then we just keep thinking about it as the if then right? Like yeah. if this happens, then I'll be happy. And right. then it, it usually somewhere in there is something like the word success. But I think that for most people, we, we equate success with happiness, but we tend to prioritize things like monetary success right. over real true happiness. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Oh my so gosh. Interesting. And, and you know, it's where my mind just jumped to there is that as I'm talking about this idea of toxic positivity, I think sometimes, you know, Sean Aker, Martin Seligman, you know, those, those researchers who, who work in the field of positive psychology, I think mainstream has really diluted the important work that they do because the field of positive psychology is not the same thing. They're not advocating for this toxic positivity bullshit right? What they're doing is they're actually studying what are, what are the variables that exist in people's lives that actually do contribute to real happiness. And part of that is how do I develop resilience? How do I lean into uncomfortable feelings? How do I reach out and have a supportive, caring network, right? Not the same thing as just think happy thoughts or good vibes only. So, so good. Oh my gosh, Melissa, you have blown me away today. Like, I have taken more, more notes in this episode than I think I've ever taken. I've taken like five pages of notes. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is just incredible. We're definitely going to have you back on. So let us know where everyone can find you and connect with you. Sure, sure. Well, like I said, you know, when we started out, I have a passion for working with people anywhere on the continuum from mental illness to mental health. And so I have my own private practice, which is Melissa Pine Counseling Services. And then I have helped to launch a coaching practice, which is called Red Maple Professional Coaching. And so we have, you know, a vision of rehumanizing workplaces and starting to bring a lot of this employee wellness into workplaces. Awesome. Oh my gosh. So that will all be referenced over at a room to grow podcast.com as well. And I have one final question for you. I ask every guest, if you could offer people one piece of advice onto growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? Ooh, one piece of advice. Um, so if I do a run on sentence, does that count as one piece? I will completely accept that. Um, okay. I think my one piece of advice would be actually to stop chasing happiness. Um, things like pursuing purpose and living in alignment with your values and developing deep, genuine relationships. I think that actually brings much more satisfaction, better quality of life. Um, and you do that by allowing yourself to, to get curious with kindness about your emotions. So, so beautiful. I, I, I'm telling you like every guest that I have had on lately, the answers just keep getting better. Every guest I have, like keeps giving me better and better answers every week. It's amazing. (laughs) What a cool job you have that you get to just, you know, tap into the wisdom of your community. A girl, I am like, I have already been thinking that. And I think that every time I do an interview with a guest, especially people that I have, have met sort of like randomly or that I would only meet through like through and because of this podcast, I continue to be blown away by it because I have just met the coolest people and gotten the most amazing wisdom and absorbed so much cool information from all of all of you and and these amazing people. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity because I, I just love connecting with people like you who have so many fascinating things to say and that I think a lot of these things we all really need to hear and we need to think about this stuff a lot more. So I am so grateful for you for coming on, for giving us your time today. And I'm really excited to do this again. (laughs) Me too. To be continued. To be continued. That's right. 
How good was that? Oh my gosh, so much great stuff in there. For anything that we referenced in today's episode, everything about where to find Melissa, all of those great things, make sure to jump over to roomtogrowpodcast.com. All the information will be over there. And don't forget to hit subscribe because I'm back every Tuesday and Thursday with another episode for you. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Room to Grow podcast today. All show notes and references can be found over at roomtogrowpodcast.com. And can you do me one huge favor before you go though? If you can take a, take a screenshot of this episode and tag me on social media, I would absolutely love to see who's listening and get to connect with you and thank you. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would go a long way and make such a huge difference. It really helps to get the word out there, get more amazing guests on the show and helps to get all of this information out to the world. Looking forward to growing with you.